Well, hello again. My name is Sean, and we will be continuing our journey through the New Testament uh, book or letter or what they would call an epistle to the church at Philippi. The sermon passage today is found on page 10 in your order of worship there. There's a children's version on page 11, and boys and girls who are staying are going to want to use that, so you'll have your finger there. And for those of you who would like to use the Bible there in front of you in the chair, the, the passage today is found on page 922 in that. And if you're here today and you don't have a Bible um, with you at home, please take that one with you as our gift. We would love for you to have that. So as you're turning there, I kind of want to get us into the spirit of this text today by sharing a couple quotes from some relatively famous people. First, I want to start out with a quote from uh, Winston Churchill, who said this. Winston Churchill said, I like pigs. Dogs look up to us. Cats look down on us. Pigs treat us as equals. He said this while he was in one of his black dog days, is what he would call them. He struggled with depression his entire life. Another famous man, the Baptist uh, mega pastor, I guess you could say, from London in the late 1800s, Charles Spurgeon. He said of his depression a couple things. Let's look at these. He said, my spirits were sunken so low that I would weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. And then in a sermon titled, Night and Jesus Not There, he spoke of his anxiety. He said, there is a kind of mental darkness in which you are disturbed, perplexed, worried, troubled. Not perhaps about anything tangible. Anxiety and depression are real. And Christians can struggle with them. Now, today we're going to look at some heart and some sin issues about that. And depression may be from sin, but having depression and anxiety is not a sin. Sometimes you need to have some counseling and to look at some sin patterns in your life, but a lot of times you need to go to the doctor because it's a medical condition, okay? Go get yourself some Wellbutrin and get your happy back. And there is nothing unbiblical or wrong with that. And I apologize for sometimes in church world, there's this pressure that there may be something wrong with that. Why am I going there today? Well, let's read the text and then we'll come back to that question, all right? So look with me now, Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 19 through 30. <clears throat> I hope in the Lord Jesus Christ to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ." risking his life 
to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, this is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before Your Word, we ask, Lord, that once again You would open Your Word up to us. We pray, Lord, that You would be true to Your promise that You are present among Your people's praises and that You are present when Your Word is looked at. So, Father, we pray that You would even now send Your Spirit. Show us truth. Show us our great need of truth. Would You let us see Jesus in all His beauty? And we cling to Him alone. We pray you would do all this, Father, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So the plot, if you will, of this text, remember Paul is in prison. He has been away from this church for a long time. He planted it about 10 years prior to this letter, and then it's been under someone's ministry, and he's checked in with them, and now they have sent him a financial gift to help cover his needs while he's in prison, and he also got a report about some bad stuff happening in their church, and so he is writing to help kind of address these issues, and Clearly, they wanted him to send his like top dog, his best pupil, his most apt apprentice, Timothy. And Paul's like, hey, I, I want to send Timothy, but not yet. So I'm going to send you back Epaphroditus. So Epaphroditus came from them, was supposed to stay with Paul for a while, but Paul was going to send him back. And if you've been around church world for a while, whenever someone's supposed to go on a mission thing and they come back early, there's always the would they do? right? Why are they back early? And so you can see Paul is preempting that with, I want you to receive him. I want you to honor him. Take him with joy and honor such men. So there's some sort of, there, you can see this problem in the Philippian church is, is uh, going to perhaps affect this as well. So Paul is trying to get them to accept Epaphroditus. So what Paul does is Paul opens up his own heart and lets him see his own internal struggles, what he is dealing with. It's a very emotional text. Our English translations tend to kind of gloss over it, but if an original Greek reader would pick up on the very um, passionate slash emotional language in this text. I want everybody to go ahead and grab their bulletin, and I want you just to kind of look at this passage with me as an overview real quick. If you look at verse 19, Paul says at there in verse 19 that he needs to be cheered up, which means he's not cheered up right now. He goes, please, I need to be cheered up. Then in verse 27, if you look down there, he says he has sorrow upon sorrow. And he doesn't want to have any more sorrow. It sounds a lot like depression. In verse 20, we're told that Timothy is genuinely concerned. We could translate that anxious for them. Verse 26, Epaphroditus is, is longing for them. And we could translate that he's homesick for them. Then it goes on to say he's distressed, a word that we could also translate as depressed. Verse 28, Paul says he's eager to have less, what? Anxiety. I don't, want to, I, want, I don't want any more anxiety. He admits he's already got it in verse 28 and doesn't want more. I mean, as you walk through this passage, it sounds a lot like a therapy session. So why is it like that? What's going on? If you remember, Paul gave this really intense command at our last passage last week. He said, look, in the midst of all these troubles, in the midst of what God is doing in you to make you more like Jesus, here's your big command. Ready? Stop whining. That's what he says. Verse 14, you can look it up. He goes, quit complaining, quit arguing, quit grumbling. He goes, because you're supposed to shine as gospel beacons in a dark and twisted world, and you don't do that if you're whining. So take the passy out, 
Man up, woman up, and quit whining is basically what he says. And again, you can look it up. That's all in the text. Now what Paul is doing is he's going to give them a real-life application because he is not walking every day through fields of roses. He is in a prison pit. Whatever you're thinking of when I say Paul's in prison, it's not bad enough, okay? You can actually go to Ephesus today, and you can see the hole that they used as a prison, and it was a hole. And there's not even the little benefit of the little side bucket for special usages, okay? If you know, you know. Okay, there's just a hole. Paul is miserable. He misses his friends. He misses his family. And notice what he is not doing. He's not grumbling. He's not complaining. He's showing this is how you honestly deal with this junk. You call it junk. It affects your life. It affects your emotions. And you own them and you name them. He's demonstrating to them how do you not grumble and whine when life is hard. He's showing them in all the things of life. Now, if you notice the sermon title, it's all the things. And I just said the word things. So if you ever take a public speaking class, the very first moment they tell you, be specific. You need to get rid of words like stuff and things from your vocabulary. So why am I up here using the word things? Because Paul does. And I want to follow Paul's language and verbiage. Now look with me. We have a slide for this because it's kind of hard to follow. Verse 19, Paul says, news of you is how they've translated literally in Greek. It's y'all's things. Verse 20, your welfare. Literally, it's again, y'all's things. Verse 21, it says they, they look out for their own interests. It's literally their things. And in verse 23, it says, I want you to know how it will go with me. Literally, it's the things around me or my things, my stuff. Paul is using this language. Why is Paul using this language? Well, I pray for this. I, pray, I have a prayer list. I pray for the staff pretty intensely every day because um, they have to deal with me primarily. So Marty's list was getting so long. And I was like, you know what? I, found, I literally just crossed it out and I wrote above it all the things. Because why? When life gets overwhelming, when there's too much going on, you see, you see, all the things, right? And that's where Paul is. That's why he's using this kind of language. I think Paul was in a situation like, I just, just all the things. Here's the gospel and all the things. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. When all the things overwhelm, the gospel relieves us. All right, so let's jump right in. So first thing we're going to look at is the gospel in emotional things. Look with me at verse 19. Paul says this. He says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered up by news of you. See, Paul says, I want my happy back. It's been a tough time. I need to be cheered up. I'm in a bad place. I'm not in a good, I want, I need some good news. He's not complaining. He's being very honest with his feelings. Oh, hear that, dear Christian. It is okay for you to say, I am in Christ and I have joy. Say, life is really hard right now. There's nothing contradictory about that. There's nothing unfaithful about that. It's not easy living in what he called in verse 15, a sin-twisted world, a crooked, perverse time. And Paul admits, specifically goes, this does not feel right being separated from you. I'm your church planner. I'm your apostle. We should be together. And he's expressing how much he needs to be cheered up by. He wants to be with them. It's a reflection that there is something so wrong, dear Christian, about you and I being separated physically from our Lord. 
It's not right. We're not brains in a jar who all we need to grow in Christ and be disciples is to have a theological data dump. We're in bodies and we need deep fellowship. And yes, he's given us union with him so we have fellowship and we have the communion table where we participate in his body and blood, but we still need a Jesus we can wrap our arms around and one day, someday, that's the hope of heaven that we will get to have him in fully in body. There's something not right until then. And until then, we have to live and deal with a crooked and twisted generation, like he says in verse 15. And a crooked and twisted time creates hard emotions in us. It creates challenging feelings. Life is hard. In verse 28, Paul goes on to say that he's eager. He really wants to do what? He wants to send Epaphroditus to them. And why does he want to send him? He says, so I will be less anxious. Now, here's what's crazy. Paul says, I'm already anxious. I want to be less anxious. And if you know your Bible, you know that we're going to get there in a couple chapters, probably around July, where Paul says the famous verse, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And yet, here's Paul doing this. Either he's completely daft and can't stop contradicting himself or maybe there's different degrees of anxiety or maybe this Paul's not perfect he's a sinner struggling with junk just like us and he's like here is what I should be here is what I am Lord thank you for your grace in that gap right there literally he says at the end of verse 28 so I will have less this verb could be this verb has translated anxiety it's translated grief it's translated sorrow for those of you who think the Bible has nothing to do with real life, it doesn't get much more real than addressing anxiety, grief, and sorrow, does it? That's real life right there. And Paul says, I don't want any more of that. Thank God we have the gospel for the challenges of real life like this. And so did the Philippian church. They had this same gospel. And so to remind them, Paul wants to send his right-hand man, Timothy. Paul uses very emotional language to describe Timothy. Look with me at verse 20, how Paul describes Timothy. He says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. We could actually translate that, who will be anxious for your welfare. And Paul says, I have no one like him. Literally, he shares my soul. I have no one who is of one soul, one heart, like Timothy is. Paul is saying here, I want to send part of myself to you. I miss you so badly, and I want to have this connection to you. I don't want to send some, some random person. I want to send part of myself back to you to cheer you up, to hear news of you. He wants to send his very best, part of his own soul. Oh, and so too, dear flock, do you see that in the incarnation, when Jesus Christ came down to be one of us in human form, the Father sent his very best, part of his heart, to be with us, to encourage us. And then when Jesus himself returned back to the Father, he left his very best, the spirit behind to be with us. He left part of his very heart to be with us, to encourage us. But there's even more. Timothy will go to this church eventually. He will search out through the church. He will get to know them intimately. He will see their concerns and take those concerns directly to Paul for answer. And so too, the Apostle Paul tells us later on in another book that the Holy Spirit searches the very hearts of Christians, finds out exactly what we need, and then how crazy is this? Paul actually says the Holy Spirit prays for us 
in groans and mutterings too deep for words because we don't even know what we should be praying for. What Timothy is going to do for this church is exactly what the Holy Spirit does for us. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. But Timothy can't quite go yet. And so this cat named Epaphroditus is going to go back to them containing a letter, which is what we call Philippians. He's the one who actually took Paul's writing back to them to the actual church. And we find out that he's emotional too. So I grew up uh, out west in Wyoming, and my parents are from Arkansas. And so every summer, they would take my sister and I, and they would pack us up from the humidity-less, pristine mountains of Wyoming, and they would ship us down to the bug-infested, humid jungle of Arkansas to see their family. So now that I'm older, I realized, oh, they wanted like three weeks without any kids. I get it. Okay, not bad. So anyway, that was the plan. Did that almost every summer. And there was, my dad has told the story over and over again. There was one summer, and I was about seven, eight years old, when my grandpa had to call my dad and say, Don, you've got to come get this kid. I have never seen a more homesick child than this. He is miserable, and he's making all of us miserable. You've got to come get him. Now, for seven or eight, that's, okay, that's not bad, right? But if I was like, you know, an adult, It'd be a little weird, right? And Epaphroditus here in the language pushes the boundaries of weird. Look with me at verse 26. Paul describes him and says, For he has been longing for you all, and he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Literally, it says he has been intensely craving, like he has to have them. He's homesick. And then he really was sick. They were worried about him. And it says he was distressed about that. Literally, we could translate it depressed. So he's homesick and depressed is how the original readers would have read verse 26. Now, I'm belaboring this point, but again, the Greek text is dripping with emotions in a way that our English translations just aren't. Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus are deep in their fields, and they don't really know how to navigate that well out of them. They're not ha- they don't have it all together. I hope that encourages you because one of the things I've noticed after, you know, 25 years of being in ministry is that there's this kind of, it never, it's never said, it's more like a whiff, a, a mist, maybe a smell that, well, when you're really godly, you have fewer and fewer emotions. That if you really have your stuff together and are really Christ-like, you kind of hide your feelings. One guy put it this way, oh yeah, there's, a, there's an idea out there that to be a sanctified Christian means when you have a feeling, you get over it. <laughs> These three godly men clearly could not just get over it. They were dealing with lots of hard emotions, including anxiety and depression, because in a sin-twisted world, we need the gospel for emotional things. But we also need the gospel in relational things. So I've told this story before, sorry if it's a repeat for those of you so back in South Carolina, before we moved to Boston, we had a, a big black lab. Her name was Dixie. We had to get rid of her before we went to Boston because we were moving from like a house to what they call a house up there, which was tiny. Plus, I can't be a church planner trying to make connection with a bunch of Yankee neighbors with a dog named Dixie, right? So it's not going to work. <laughs> True story. So anyway, had to get rid of her. Love that dog. Remember one day she brushed up against me and almost knocked me over and I looked at her and all of a sudden I saw for the first time I said Dixie you're such a fatty fat fat fatty and Nikki was right there and she made this weird noise like kind of like a laugh kind of like a scoff and I was like what you know my husband radar went off like what what what? and she goes oh this is really hard for you because you judge people with fat dogs I was like I do not oh wait I do judge people with fat dogs that's so messed up 
Now, that's pretty tame as far as judging goes, right? But let's just own that even for tame judging, there is something deeply ugly about judging in general. I'm taking someone made in the image of God and I'm counting them as a less worthy person because of how much food they give their animal. That's messed up. Humans are just that good at finding reasons to hate each other, aren't we? We're really good at it. We're really good at defining our people and their people, us, them, and these are the safe people, and those people are not safe. We're so good at that, but there's something truly beautiful in this text just below the surface. Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus represent three people groups that should have hated each other, that did, in fact, hate each other in the ancient world. Paul was an uber-conservative, rule-following Pharisee of Pharisees. He was an educated Jewish man, a leader in his day. He was a terrorist before he became a Christian who joyfully went out to kill Christians. He was right, and everybody else was wrong, and he knew it as much as you know the sun is going to set later this evening. Timothy, his mom's Jewish, his dad's a Greek, Gentile. He doesn't live near Jerusalem, the holy city. He's out there with all those pagans. And we find out he skipped a very serious Jewish religious ritual that made him kind of like not as much of a Jew as other people. Okay, he should have had something cut off. He didn't have it cut off. It didn't work. So if you know, you know, that's all I'm going to say. Paul would not have liked that. Timothy would not have liked Paul for not liking that. Then we get to this cat named Epaphroditus. Big, long name, I know, but I want you to look at verse 25, I think. Yeah, if you look at verse 25 there, that's the first time we see his name in writing. I want you to stare at his name there. Do you see something in the middle of that big, long, weird name? Do you see it? The word Aphrodite is right there in the middle of that name. Epaphroditus' family dedicated him, or at least named him after the pagan goddess of lust and sex. This guy was like the Gentile of Gentiles, pagan. So you've got Paul the Pharisee over here, calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. He would hate Timothy as an impure half-breed. And both of them would have looked down on Epaphroditus, the really dirty Gentile pagan. They should have hated each other. Instead, Paul sees Timothy as a son and Epaphroditus as some sort of like pastoral special forces. Because the gospel helps people then and now look on those people with real love instead of judging. Now, let's look at the text. You can see there's a real depth of love for each other. Uh, verse 22, Paul says, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. Paul, the self-righteous Pharisee of Pharisees in the gospel, loves Timothy as a son. And if there was anybody Pharisees hated more than half-breeds like Timothy, it was pagan Gentiles, especially some guy whose family would have named him after an idol. But what does Paul say about him? Look at verse 25. He calls Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. See, the gospel was bigger and more powerful than their hatred. God changed them and use them mightily in his grace. See, because of the gospel, they weren't defined by their past or by their people. 
so too you realize your past, your people don't have to define you. Those failures you carry around with you, those mistakes, those, those mess-ups that, that come up to your mind all the time that make you think of yourself as damaged goods, the gospel's bigger than all of that. You can be made new in Jesus with a new story and a new way to love the increasingly diverse people all around us. Because the gospel has power in relational things. And finally, the gospel has power in our things. Let's look together at verse 21. Paul says about those around him, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Remember, their own thing or their own interests is literally things of themselves or their things. He's purposely vague as about who he's talking to as well. Is he talking about all the Christians in Rome around him? Is he talking about the church at Philippi he's writing to? Is he talking about every person in the Roman Empire? The answer is yes. When Paul is purposely vague, he's, he, he's purposely vague. We could render verse 21, in fact, we could faithfully translate it as they all crave to worship themselves, which is the heart of every single person, isn't it? So concerned with all of our things because we want to be worshiped and we worship ourselves. Remember about a month ago when we were looking at the kind of the genesis of the problems in this Philippian church? We, we, we looked, we kind of spent some time, or I guess Marty, Marty did. Marty spent some time on verse 3 and 4. Let me remind you about what verse 3 and 4 said. They say this. It said, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. See, these Philippian Christians were being very selfish, looking out for their own interests. So Paul comes right in and says, stop that. And then he gives them the, the resources to stop it by showing them the incredible humility of Jesus right after this. He says, look, y'all are worshiping yourself. Let me give you something more beautiful to grab your heart and you'll worship this instead. Look how beautiful Jesus is. See, we all do that. We worship ourselves and we need to put our eyes on Jesus and his beauty and worship him. And the gospel come, comes and the gospel cures us of that by grace. It gives us the resources. Remember last week, verse 13, we looked at last week where the promise is what? For it is in verse 13, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God comes and he's working this out of you, in you. But we're not passive. Remember the verse right before this. Verse 12 says what? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, comma. Like God is working in us. We exert effort as Christians to be more godly, to be more like Jesus. The gospel helps in all of our things like this. And that's what happened to Timothy. That's why Paul can say of Timothy, no one else cares for you as much as I do except Timothy. Timothy naturally would have looked down on Gentile pagans too. And the Philippian church was full of them. At this point, it was probably one of the more openly Gentile, hardly had any Jewish followers in this church. And Timothy, as a, a good Jewish boy, instead of worshiping his things, instead of valuing his own prejudices higher than anything else and saying those people aren't worthy of God's grace, he was changed by the gospel. Imagine what the gospel can change in us. Because the gospel gives us power in our things. All right, let's wrap this up.
So what Paul has been doing throughout this whole passage, in case you haven't noticed, he's been weaving the story of Jesus and the gospel kind of into what, what he wants these three men to do for this church, kind of making it a living parable. Uh, and it becomes very apparent in verse 30. Let's look together at verse 30 where Paul wraps up saying this, for he, being Epaphroditus, nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul says nearly died, and our English translations miss it. Paul very much on purpose says this, the very specific phrase. He says, he was to the point of death, which should key your memory if you remember where we have been, because back in verse 8, describing Jesus, he said, Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. Paul was immediately grabbing this and saying, go back to Jesus. What Epaphroditus almost did for your sake, Jesus did do in his humility. That's how much Jesus let go of his self-interest and how much in him you can too. Because Jesus is concerned for their welfare as well. That's why Jesus Christ himself left heaven to live the life these Philippian Christians should have lived and that we should live. Then he died the death that we should have died before a holy God of justice who demands perfection. And when we place our faith and trust in Jesus as that resurrected Lord, he gives us his righteousness. He puts our sins on Christ and he calls us saints and says, you are mine, come. And he changes us by this gospel. Oh, if you will but do that, if you will place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, all of this gospel power can be yours for all that emotional baggage you try to hide so well. As the gospel changed Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, the gospel can come and give us resources for our things. And you'll see healing in your emotional things. You'll see healing in your relational things. And you'll see healing in your things. Because when all the things overwhelm, the gospel gives us the resources to deal. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would take your word now and bury it deep in our hearts. Lord, I pray that for some of us you would bring repentance because we tend to bring to you our theology and our beliefs and our behaviors, but we kind of hold back our emotions and feelings. Lord, I pray that you would help us to come to you as whole people who need a whole redemption from a whole Christ. And I pray, Lord, for those here today who may not know you, that you would be true to your promise that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, shown to be crucified for sinners, and risen for our new life, that you would draw all people to him. That even in these moments, we would see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as you bring life to your people. I pray you would do this, Father, by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.